passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Before we uh, jump into our text, I just have a, a couple announcements that I want to, to touch base on um, to draw your attention to. Um, both are found in your bulletin. Uh, the first one is, as we've been mentioning over the last couple months or so, um, I'm headed on sabbatical here in uh, just a couple weeks. So to, uh, next Sunday actually will be my last Sunday uh, before um, being on sabbatical for the next two months. And um, we've, we've wanted to provide you with um, some answers to some questions that you may have, uh, some questions that have been directed our way. And so in your bulletin, you'll notice that there is an insert listing um, a, a number of questions that you might have, um, like what is a sabbatical? Um, what am I going to be doing? What is my family going to be doing? Um, what are the dates of the sabbatical? Um, all of those kind of things. So I encourage you to take a look at those. Um, and uh, if you have further questions, uh, feel free to ask. We'd be happy to answer those for you. Um, I do want to just draw attention specifically at the very end um, on, the, on the back page, uh, the last thing. Or what are some specific ways that I can be praying this summer? Um, we want this time of sabbatical to be a, a fruitful time uh, for, for my family, but also for our, our congregation as a whole. And so um, there are a couple ways that we'd love for you to intentionally be praying um, over the next couple months uh, for, for my family, but also for, uh, for our church. And so there's a list there um, of ways that uh, you can be praying um, over the next couple months um, as, uh, as we enter into that time. So um, I encourage you to read through that. If you have any questions, again, feel free to ask me, um, one of our, um, our staff or uh, one of our elders, and uh, we'll, we'll seek to, to answer those questions for you. Other thing that I want to just draw attention to, um, as, as Pastor Stephen mentioned, um, things are progressing really well over at our new facility. Um, we, we've seen some, some great transformation over there. Um, I want to just take a moment to, to touch on our capital campaign. Um, we started at the beginning of the, this year saying, hey, you know what, um, we think that $650,000 um, will allow us to renovate this space, um, do a couple projects up at our Spirit Lake campus as well, and, uh, and allow us to move in and, and hit the ground running in our new space. Um, we, we've been living in a very, very um, uh, tumultuous time financially, as, as you, I'm sure, are aware, aware. and um, uh, the church, as you might not be surprised, is not immune to inflation. And uh, so, so the price of some of the things that we are seeking to do um, uh, has gone up, and uh, we are trying to cut costs in, in other ways, uh, but um, we're probably not going to be able to hit that $650,000 mark. Just wanted to, to put that out there. That said, or, excuse me, we're not going to be able to keep our budget under $650,000. Have every confidence that we can raise that $650,000. We're at about 95% of our capital campaign goal. Last that I checked, we're at uh, a little over $622,000 um, of our $650,000 goal, which puts us at over 95%. Um, God's been so good, so faithful to our church in that regard. And um, as I've shared before, one of the ways that God meets the needs of his church is through the people in his church. And so I, I, I want to say thank you um, for, for being a part of that and being obedient to the Spirit um, in, in giving in that regard. 
Um, that said, if, um, if you as individuals and as families would consider praying again, is God calling us to contribute a little bit more to push this across the finish line so that way we can finish our projects? Um, we would greatly appreciate that as a church. So just take some time uh, to, pr- to pray. Is God asking me, is God asking my family to contribute once again or for the first time or a little bit more to our capital campaign? And there are a number of ways that you can give to that campaign. Um, you can just place an, uh, a check in our offering box out in the lobby, or you can do it through our church app. Um, you can mail a check into our church as well. Um, if you have questions about that, uh, feel free to ask me about those. Um, one thing that I do want to just uh, give you from a timeline perspective about our facility is um, we are planning on launching our Wednesday night student ministry and Wednesday night children's ministry this fall in our new facility. And so that'll give you, um, some of you are excited about that. Um, <laughs> You all should be excited about that. No, I'm kidding. I mean, yes, you should be. But um, uh, So we're planning on launching those uh, ministries over there this fall um, once they start up after the Clay County Fair. And then the plan will be to have our first worship service on a Sunday uh, there, uh, doing kind of a, a soft launch, if you will, um, at the beginning of October. All right, so we're just, um, that gives you a little bit of a timeline of where we're at in the process. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done uh, before we get to that point. And so if you have more capacity to, to help during the summer months, uh, we need you to, to come and help us over at the facility, um, regardless of your skill level, um, as we seek to, to push this across the finish line, so to speak, um, by, by um, September and October. And uh, um, thank you so much for continuing to pray about um, this, uh, this new opportunity, this new tool that God has given to us. Uh, we're going to approach God's word, but before we do that, um, we're going to pause, ask for God uh, to, to be with us, to speak to us this morning. So I invite you to join me in a time of prayer. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, it is uh, so good to, to be able to gather around your word. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful that, that you have spoken to your church and that you continue to speak to your church through your Holy Spirit. God, as we look at this passage this morning, we ask that you would do just that, that you would speak to each and every one of us. God, that you would help us to be people who examine our hearts in the light of your word. God, that we would conform our hearts and lives to the Christ-likeness that you desire from us. We ask that you would speak to us now this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're continuing in 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, Chapter 16. um, As you're you're turning there, I just want us to consider as a church, um, uh, maybe even just as individuals, what is our greatest need? What would you say is the greatest need that is facing you? And there's probably a number of different ways to answer this. Um, you, you would probably find a number of different opinions if you asked people out on the street. What is the greatest need facing you? And um, probably not surprisingly, the Bible gives us an assessment of what it thinks our greatest need is. And yet, surprisingly, the answer is not what you would think. Here in 1 Samuel, and and before 1 Samuel, even in the book of Judges, we see the Bible claims that one of, if not the greatest need facing us, is for a king. That we need a king. 
So all the way back in January, when we were beginning our time in 1 Samuel, we started by not looking at 1 Samuel, but actually by looking at the book of Judges. The book of Judges comes right before time period of the book of 1 Samuel. And we see the moral decline, the spiritual decline of the people of Israel, and it ends, the book of, First, uh, of Judges ends with these words, in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the period before 1 Samuel, the centuries leading up to 1 Samuel were filled with increasing immorality, increasing idolatry, increasing corruption, and here we're told why. It's because there was no king, and because of that, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's in this context, as we turn to the book of 1 Samuel, that we see our greatest need is for a king. But also, 1 Samuel is not telling us what our greatest need is, it's also telling us that God has provided for our greatest need. He has given us a king. But he's not just giving us a king, he's actually going to give us a king that is right after his own cart, that God is going to give us a king that he desires, and that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks of the book of 1 Samuel. Let's go ahead and set aside this question of, well, is the Bible right? Maybe, you, maybe you're not convinced that our greatest need is for a king. We'll look at that in a moment. But first, let's just consider that maybe the book of 1 Samuel is true. Maybe our greatest need is for a king. And when we look at 1 Samuel, we see, you know what? Everyone in this book actually agrees that that's the greatest need facing the people. That Israel needs a king. That God's people need a king. And yet, that's where the unity ends. You look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we see that there's this massive gap between what Israel thinks they need in a king and what God says that Israel needs in a king. And that's one of the underlying themes of the reign of King Saul. So you look at 1 Samuel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, all of these talking about Saul leading up to his reign and then his actual reign, all are about this gap between what God says we should want or need in a king and what the people actually desire in a king. And here's how we describe this gap. The people of Israel want a king like the nations. They want this king that will actually be used to replace God as king. And God says, no, 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 that's not what a king should do. The king of my people is not meant to replace me, but is instead supposed to lead the people to me, the true king, the king of glory, God himself. So that's what we've seen over the course of 1 Samuel as we've been looking at this book. And then we get to this time of the reign of Saul where we see, you know what, God gives the people what they want. God gives them a king who actually replaces God. That's what Saul does. Saul rejects God as the true king. Saul decides not to follow God as the true king from the very beginning of his reign. And all of this is pointing to this moment where God wants the people of Israel to see they need not just a king, but they need God's type of king. They need a faithful king. And that's where we find ourselves this morning as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. This morning we're going to look at 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13 here, the beginning of this reign. 
of David and the anointing of God's chosen king. We're going to follow this passage just straight through, this story, just, just looking at it, and then we're going to consider a couple applications for us this morning uh, as we close. Uh, before we do that, we're actually going to do something a little different than what we normally do here at Crosswinds, and that is, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're actually going to, uh, I'm going to read our passage, uh, uh, the entire passage this morning um, for us as we begin our time. So would you stand, if you are able, and hear these words as I read aloud, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and brought, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. You may be seated. First Samuel ends with God having rejected Saul as king because Saul, in essence, rejects God as king. That's essentially what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul rejects the word of the Lord. In essence, he rejects that God is his authority, and so God rejects Saul as the king of the people of Israel. And Samuel is grieved over this because of what it means for the people of Israel. Saul is disobedient and he is leading the people of Israel in disobedience and yet God's plans will not be thwarted by Saul's disobedience, by Saul's rebellion. In fact, this is a part of God's plan. The Lord will provide his king so that he can meet his people's greatest need. That's what we see here in verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemites. 
for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. The heart of these verses is found at the end of verse 1, where God says, I have provided for myself a king. So even though Samuel is wallowing over in, in this grief over Saul, God's plan remains intact. Though God is grieved by Saul's rebellion against him, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin God's plans. God's not saying, oh no, I have to start over from scratch. This is God's plan from before the foundation of the world, and those plans actually included a king who would be like the nations so that he could show the people their great need for a faithful king. And those plans include a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, as we read earlier, Jesse is the father of David, the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament. So it might be surprising as we look at these first few verses that David, the greatest king over Israel, is not given a genealogy. And you're saying, well, no, that doesn't surprise me because I never actually would have thought of that before. Notice, however, if you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 9, as Saul is introduced, the chapter begins with Saul's genealogy. This is the the stock that Saul comes from. And then we get to David, the the true king, the, the chosen king, and we're not given any sort of description of his family background. Even the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, it starts with a a genealogy of Samuel. So we have a genealogy for the first key character in the book, Samuel, the second key character in the book, Saul, and then we get to to David and we see, well, there's no genealogy. The, The book is starting to set up this contrast between Saul, this man who from the outward appearance has everything put together. We saw in 1 Samuel chapter 9 that Saul comes from a very well off family. And David, whose family isn't necessarily not well off, it just, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. What matters instead is that God has provided for himself a king. Now you might be saying, well, maybe, maybe the reason why 1 Samuel doesn't mention the genealogy of David is because other books in the Bible do. After all, that's what Ruth says that Ruth ends with the genealogy of David. But Ruth was almost certainly written after 1 Samuel, pointing us to David. If anything, the book of 1 Samuel is not talking about uh, David's flesh and blood origins, but instead his spiritual origins, the spiritual significance of his family, this family that is committed to following the God of the Bible in spite of the situations that they find themselves in. If anything, David's background speaks highly of the importance of of parents and families investing in children. Because as we looked at at 1 Samuel chapter 9, we saw from the very beginning, Saul doesn't, doesn't even recognize who Samuel is. The prophet who has been serving God's people faithfully for decades. And Saul says, I don't really even realize there was a prophet. 
In contrast, we have David, this man who is after, a man after God's own heart, a man whose heart that God looks at and says, this is the type of person that will be my king. Let's go back to the text. Samuel is a bit reluctant with God uh, and his idea to anoint a, a king in Bethlehem. Um, if, if you remember that uh, Samuel lives in Ramah, and to get from Ramah, where Samuel is, to Bethlehem, where this unknown king is, someone you would have to, to walk through Gibeah, which is where Saul's capital is. And so Samuel understands that this is potentially dangerous, that if Saul finds out as he's walking through Gibeah on his way to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, that uh, this might not end up well for Samuel. And so God tells him, we'll go ahead and just offer a sacrifice in Bethlehem as well. And critics will say, hey, you know what? This is God. He's being very deceitful here. He's, he's using this as a cover-up for his true purposes, his true plans. And I'll just be honest, I don't really buy that. We just got done with a chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15, that talks about the importance of external actions matching the hearts. And then for these critics to say, hey, you know what, God in the very next chapter says, all right, I want you to use external actions of worship as a cover-up for what you really are supposed to be doing. It just doesn't make any sense. What's more, we see that the idea of anointing a king should be this time of worship Saul was anointed king in conjunction with a sacrificial feast in 1 Samuel chapter 9. How much more should that be the case for the chosen king, the true king of God's people, David? So this isn't a cover-up for hiding his true motives. It's, it's a, a supremely appropriate response that this is a part of God's plan. This is a part of God meeting his people's needs. And so, of course, God's people should gather together in worship at Bethlehem. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel does exactly what God asks him to do. He goes to Bethlehem. He gets to Bethlehem. The elders of the city are nervous. We're not really told why. To our knowledge, this is the first time that Samuel has come to Bethlehem, and so it's possible, uh, even likely, that they just assume the worst, that, that this prophet has come to pronounce judgment upon their city. So what are you doing here, Samuel? What, what's going on? And they're, they're nervous. And uh, Samuel sets them at ease and says, relax, I'm just here to worship, I'm just here to offer a sacrifice, so prepare yourselves for this sacrifice. Before the sacrifice is offered, he prepares the, the sons of Jesse, he prepares Jesse as well, and then they arrive at the location of the sacrifice before everyone else, and that's where we see in verse 6, this take place. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, one of the things that we've seen in our time in 1 Samuel is this underlying theme about the importance of sight. The importance of being able to see. So one of the early tragedies of the book of 1 Samuel is that the high priest, Eli, is losing his eyesight. 
He's, he's barely able to see. By the end of his life, he's basically blind. And yet, that's not just talking about a physical reality. It's also talking about a spiritual reality as well, that Eli isn't just going blind physically. He's also not really good at seeing things spiritually. And so he lets his sons get away with things that he shouldn't, and he doesn't confront them. And the people of Israel are on decline because of the lack of sight, spiritual sight of the leader of God's people. And we're reminded throughout the book of 1 Samuel of the importance of spiritual insight, of how important it is for us to chase after God, to understand His will, to have the right eyesight, to have the right priorities in our lives. And that's the case here in 1 Samuel 16. The, the key word in this chapter is the word see. See. It happens five times in these first seven verses. It actually happens the first time back in verse 1. In our phrase, I have provided for myself a king, that literally in Hebrew is God saying, I have seen for myself a king. So God is looking out and he has the spiritual insight to see the one that he has chosen to be king. And now there's a bit of irony here. Because Samuel the prophet, or another way of referring to a prophet, is a seer. Samuel the seer is seeing the wrong way. He misses the mark. He sets his, his eyes on Jesse's firstborn son and thinks, now that is the type of person a king should be. Or maybe a better way of, of translating this and looking at this a little bit more woodenly, God has seen for himself a king among the sons of Jesse, and now Samuel sees a son of Jesse, and he concludes that that is the, wrong, that is the one. But God intervenes and says, hey, 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 Samuel, you're using the wrong eyesight. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Be careful, Samuel. Don't be blind to the things of God. There's this underlying danger if you look at these verses here in, in Samuel's thought process. If we consider uh, Jesse's firstborn son with what we saw from Saul, there's a number of parallels. Saul was rejected in chapter 13 and chapter 15. Here we see Eliab is rejected. Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9 is described as the best looking man in Israel, as very tall, taller than anyone else in Israel. And here we have the same thing for Jesse's firstborn son. He's very handsome and he is very tall. So what the text is telling us is that Samuel, because he has the wrong eyesight, is, is going to, to make a massive error that he's not just going to appoint the wrong person king, he's going to anoint another Saul, another king like the nations. And I think this is a warning to us because it is so easy for us, even in the church, to get caught up in external appearances. It is so easy for churches to place people in positions of leadership on their elder board or in deacon teams who just have won a popularity contest rather than those who are qualified according to what we see from Scripture. I can't tell you the number of people that I have talked to when I introduce myself and, and um, 
outside of the church and, and introduce myself and, and say that I'm a pastor, one of the first questions that they ask me, even at pastor gatherings, is, well, how many people go to your church? It's a question of external appearances. You look at the speakers at church conferences, and they're oftentimes the ones who are from big churches because they can draw a big crowd. Even in the church, we are prone to do exactly what Samuel is doing here, to look at the external outward appearances rather than at the heart. So God's words here are a warning saying, hey, hey, be on guard against this temptation because it's very natural for us to not see things, to not prioritize things the way God does, but instead to follow the way of the world. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with external appearances. We're going to see at the end of this passage that David is also described as quite the looker. He's quite handsome. No wonder the people were singing praises to him of Saul has, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. It's because he was easy on the eyes. But at the end of the day, God doesn't care. God doesn't care about the heart. God doesn't care about how impressive your life looks like on the outside. He cares about your heart. I'm reminded of the words of the late pastor Robert Murray McShane. He said, what a man is on his knees before God, he, that he is and nothing more. You want to know what God thinks of you. God doesn't care about your external appearances. God doesn't care about your first impression around other people. God doesn't care about you putting your first foot forward or your best foot forward. God doesn't care about any of those things. God cares about your heart. God sees what is done in secret. He sees whether your heart is moldable. He sees whether it is receptive to the things of God or if it is hollow. And so here we have this warning from God to Samuel saying, look out, Samuel, because you got the wrong glasses on. You're looking at this thing all wrong. You're, you're using the wrong framework here. You need to look at things the way that I look at them, Samuel. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So after Eliab is rejected, the rest of Jesse's sons go before Samuel, and just as with the first, so also the rest. None of these sons are the one that God will provide a king for himself. And I'm sure that Samuel is confused in this moment because God has said that his future king would come from the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Bethlehem isn't that, very, isn't that big. Did he find the right Jesse? So he asks him, Jesse, what's going on? None of your sons are the ones that I'm supposed to anoint here. What am I missing? Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. 
And we don't know why Jesse doesn't bring his youngest son to the sacrifice. Most likely, it's because someone had to watch over the sheep, and David, because he's the youngest, he just draws the short end of the stick. So he's left with the sheep. He has to stay behind. In any case, Samuel says, hey, we're, we're, you need to send for him. We're not going to sit down until he is here. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. At last, we see the king that God has provided for himself. It's this youngest son of the family of Jesse, the most unlikely of the family of Jesse. Notice, if you look here, we haven't even been told his name yet. To this point, we've only seen him described as the youngest, the one who's being left out. It's not until he's actually anointed king that we find out that his name is David. And that's what we'll see in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel anoints this youngest son in the presence of his brothers, the text actually, notice, doesn't tell us that they know what this anointing is for. Now, we do. Samuel does. But it doesn't actually tell us that the brothers and Jesse and even David are told what this anointing is for. Now, we can assume, based off of of David's actions throughout the rest of his life, that David is told later. But based off of the context of the ways that his brothers act toward him, later on in 1 Samuel, I don't think that they actually are aware of what this anointing is for. It could just be that he is being anointed to be a prophet or to follow around and to to shadow, job shadow, if you will, Samuel here as he gets to the end of his life. But notice what takes place in addition to this physical anointing of David here. Not only is David anointed with oil by Samuel, but he's also anointed with the Holy Spirit by God. Again, this should tie us or bring us back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 10, and the anointing of Saul. Because back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see that Saul, as he is anointed king, Samuel says, the the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, as confirmation of this anointing that has just taken place. It's the exact same language that we see here, the spirit rushing upon David. We see the exact same thing with Saul again in 1 Samuel chapter 11, that right before he goes and attacks this invading army from the east, it tells us that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul. So this phrase, the the spirit rushing upon someone, is is a phrase about God is equipping is anointing, is preparing, is using someone for his plans and purposes. But there's a major difference, a massive difference here. To this point in the story of the Bible, the Holy Spirit has never come upon someone permanently. It's only been temporarily. So we read that the, the Holy Spirit would come upon people to lead Israel in victory over battle, in battle, like in Judges chapter 3, that he would come upon people to prophecy in Numbers chapter 11, that he would come upon people for leadership in Numbers chapter 11 again, even for special tasks in Exodus chapter 31. But in each of these situations, 
There's a unique task and unique purpose that God equips people for, but never are we told explicitly that the Holy Spirit has come upon someone, to use the language of verse 13, from that day forward. So this is a massive deal. It's a huge moment that God's Spirit is empowering David, this king that he has provided for himself, for his people, to lead his people in a way that he has never done before. That God's plans and purposes are going to be accomplished through David, not because of David's faithfulness, but because of the power of God at work in him. This verse in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is massive in its significance in the story of the Bible because it points us to another person, another king that the Holy Spirit dwells upon, dwells within permanently. You see, David, unlike any other in the Old Testament, points us to the person of Jesus. We will soon see that David is God's chosen king of God's chosen people. And as the chosen king, he is called the son of God in Psalm chapter 2. We are told that his kingdom, God will establish forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are told that he suffers at the hands of wicked men in Psalm 71, among other places. We are told that he will be betrayed by a close friend or is betrayed by a close friend in Psalm 41. And here we're told that he has been filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission that God has entrusted to him. And in the exact same way, Jesus is the king of God's people, God's chosen king over his people, but not just the people of Israel, but people from every language, tribe, nation, and tongue. This Jesus is the very Son of God. This Jesus, his kingdom, will be established forever. This Jesus suffers at the hands of wicked men. This Jesus is betrayed by the hand of one of his closest friends. This Jesus has the Spirit of God resting upon him to accomplish God's purposes and plans for salvation for anyone who would come and believe in him. Just consider the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the book of Luke, starting first with his baptism. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." Immediately after this, Jesus is sent into the wilderness by the Spirit. He's tempted for 40 days by the devil. It's worth noting that in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, as Jesus is sent into the wilderness, he does it full of the Spirit. After his temptation, Jesus returns to Galilee. And again, notice in chapter 4 of the book of Luke that Jesus does this in the power of the Spirit. Jesus begins his ministry in Nazareth, in his hometown, and he chooses a text in front of the synagogue to read. And what text does he choose? He chooses one from the book of Isaiah, talking about how the Spirit of God rests upon God's servant to accomplish God's purposes and plans. It says this in Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see how here at the very beginning of David's reign, our eyes are wrenched from King David and and thrust upon King Jesus? That our gaze may start with David, but it eventually goes to David's son where it rests. That David, he leads God's people through the power of the Spirit to accomplish God's purposes and plans in the world. And Jesus, through the power of God's Spirit, establishes a kingdom that overcomes death through his his crucifixion and his victorious resurrection. That's what we see here. In Jesus' day, the greatest honor that someone could give to him was to call him the son of David. And yet, as we consider the, the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and who Jesus really is, we see that the greatest honor isn't that Jesus is called the son of David, but rather that David gets to be associated with Jesus. This passage turns our eyes first to David, but then ultimately to Jesus. And as we come to an end, we come to this claim that this passage is making, that our greatest need is for a king. And I would go a step further, that 1 Samuel is not just saying that we need a king. 1 Samuel is telling us that we need a faithful king. We need a king that is going to lead us back to God. And David does that to some degree. But David is a shadow of what is to come. That's really the message of this passage. It's not about David at all. It's it's about Jesus. It's simply this, in Jesus, God has met my greatest need and given me a faithful king. That God has met my greatest need and given me a faithful king in Jesus. You might be wondering, well, why do I need a king? Because whether we realize it or not, whether we want to recognize it, admit it or not, we need someone who is going to lead us in the path of following the king of glory. Without a king, we are lost, we are blind, we are prone to wander, we are prone to go astray. That's the testimony of Scripture. That's the testimony of our lives before we encounter Jesus. Our greatest need is for a restored relationship with the King of glory, with God himself. And Jesus doesn't just lead us and say, hey, follow my example, do as I do. But he makes a way back to God. In Jesus, God has met my greatest need and has given me a faithful king. 
where all else have failed, David's son, King Jesus, has prevailed. And so as we come to the end of this passage, just consider three brief applications for how this matters for me here and now. The first one is this. This passage reveals the majesty of Jesus. It reveals how great Jesus is, and it motivates us to worship. This spurs us on to worship. This passage turns our gaze from David to David's son to the son of God, this king who has overcome, who is perfectly faithful. And we're going to respond with song here in a few moments. This is an opportunity for us to to express our affection for this marvelous king who leads us back to God, to the King of glory. But worship is not just something that we do through song on Sunday mornings. Worship is this way of life. Worship is a life that seeks to please God. And that's really what we see from this passage as well. A second thing, that if we want to please God, then we do it by focusing on the internal and not on the external. By focusing not on the external but on the internal that's not to say the external is bad it just god doesn't it just doesn't matter to god it doesn't carry any weight in god's accounting i think there are at least two ways that this looks in our lives today first one is this that we we please god by focusing on the internal and not the external and that means that outward appearance is secondary to godliness outward appearance is secondary to godliness Peter's words to the women of the early church, broadly applicable to everyone, says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God doesn't care about the outside. He cares about the inside. A gentle and quiet spirit. Paul says it similarly as he's writing to his friend Timothy. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness matters. And each and every one of us would do well to take a long look in the mirror and ask ourselves what matters most to us. What we see in the mirror or our heart? Are we pursuing godliness? But there's another way that this principle of God pleasing God through focusing on the internal, not the external. And that's kind of what we saw last week as well, that God, God cares a whole lot more about the, the internal heart behind acts of worship than the actual acts of worship as well. You might have a great voice, but is your heart more consumed with the sound of your voice or the, the God that you are praising? You might be able to give a great deal to the church, but are you consumed with your ability to meet needs or the greatness of what God has given to you first in Jesus? You might have the capacity and the heart and the desire to serve in the church in, in countless ways, and yet are, is, your, is your heart's default state to say, man, look at me, I'm serving more than anyone else. Why isn't anyone else serving rather than saying, nothing in my hands I bring, 
simply to the cross I cling. A heart that focuses on pleasing God looks to the internal and not to the external. One final way this passage matters for here and now. See, David might have been the first one to, uh, the Spirit rests on permanently, but he's not the last. After King Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, wins the prize of victorious resurrection, he also gives anyone who would follow him that same Spirit. That just like David, and just like Jesus, we don't have to say the Spirit comes upon us every now and then, but the Spirit dwells within us. Now, we're not a liturgical church in the traditional sense of the term, but I, I do think it is providential that today in the liturgical church calendar, June 5th, is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day that the church historically has remembered the day that God gave the gift of His Holy Spirit to His church. That's what we read in Acts. And as we look at Acts, we actually see that God has not just given us the Holy Spirit to do something new, but He gives us the Holy Spirit for a purpose. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God equips and empowers his people through the Spirit for what? Well, we see here it's for his plans and purposes in the world to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. And here's this third way that 1 Samuel chapter 16 matters for me right here, right now. It's this, that we have been equipped by the Spirit to glorify Jesus and to join him in his mission. That God has given you his Spirit so that you can glorify him and that you can join him in the mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That just like David, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been given this Holy Spirit so that you can bring Jesus glory. And that you can accomplish his purposes in this world. That's the calling. That's, that's not just for a, a select few. But it's for anyone who would say, you know what, Jesus is my king, that I have chosen to follow Jesus, that I swear allegiance to this king Jesus, then you've been equipped by the Spirit, just like David, just like Jesus even, so that you can bring glory to Jesus and join him in his mission to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. It's just Jesus who meets our greatest need because he is our faithful king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. God, we ask that you would help us, enable us to be a people who follow you who seek to please you, not by looking at external things, but instead by looking at the heart. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. 
and may God continue to enrich your life.